Open your Bibles, if you would, to the book of Philippians, chapter number 1, as you remain standing for the reading of God's Word. And I so appreciate that. So appreciate that. The reverence that God's Word is due, merely standing doesn't seem to encompass that. We're going to start our study today in the book of Philippians, and Philippians is one of those spiritually rich books, just very, very rich in content, and it's not easy to divide this book, not quite as easy anyway as it is uh, to divide others, Uh, as for example, our book of Galatians, we were able to divide that into three parts, but... Philippians is a little bit different, but it's a spiritually rich book that is encouraging beyond words. And so we're going to take a look today. I want to read two verses of Scripture and we'll make our prayer. Starting in verse number one of Philippians chapter number one, it says, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons. Can you read verse 2 with me? Grace be unto you, and peace from God our Father, and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Father, we come before you, Lord, before the one and only one, who can be that double cure. The one that can save us from wrath and make us pure. Father, we thank You for Your love today. Now Lord, I ask You, as I've asked You many times before, to empty me of myself today. Father, what would be presented this morning would not be my own words or my own thoughts, but Father, that they would be an explanation only of Your words. But Father, let that explanation be right. Father, let it be glorifying to Thee. Let it be something that draws attention to Your Son. Father, let it be uh, not any axe to grind or anything along those lines, Father, but let it simply be the words of Jesus Christ lifted up and made much of. Father, let us see Him this morning. Move me out of the way. Hide me behind the cross. I beg of You, Lord, to speak to me and then speak through me. It's in Your Son's name we pray these things. Amen. Thank you. You may be seated. As we have been going through the book of Galatians on Sunday evening and and we had just finished up our study in the book of Nehemiah on Sunday mornings, uh, I had a couple different areas that I wanted to, I felt the Lord kind of pushing me to go, uh, and one of those was into the book of Philippians. I had purposed in my heart to go a different direction, but the Lord just kind of started laying the book of Philippians on me, and, and I, I learned a long time ago that whenever God starts to uh, usher, it, it, you need to listen. And so uh, I wanted to go down the road of Philippians here, and so I've spent the past few weeks reading through the book of Philippians over and over and over again, and my uh, personal devotion time has been very sweet, and you know the way I like to study. Uh, I like to take the book in its entirety, read from front to, back to, to the uh, end, 
uh, and, and I like to read that over and over and over and familiarize myself with the book. Uh, so as I've kind of come to looking at this, there are uh, truths found uh, in these four chapters that are so interwoven that, as I said a while ago, it's, it's difficult for us uh, to truly uh, divide this book. Galatians, we divided it. The first two chapters were dealing with Paul's uh, defense of his apostleship. The second two chapters, the explanation of the gospel. And then the last two chapters, the outcome of the gospel. And so here in Philippians, however, we're looking at something that is very much interwoven. The truths within uh, the passages make it a little more difficult to, to divide it as such. However, I, before we dig too deeply, I do want to give a brief overview of the background so that we know a little bit about why Paul is writing and to whom he is writing. Now, you're going to find in this overview uh, that uh, the start of this church takes place in, in the book of Acts, specifically Acts chapter 16. So if you were to read in the book of Acts chapter 16, let's do that for just a moment. Keep your hand in Philippians or stick a, uh, an offering envelope and fill it out later in the book of Philippians. And uh, a couple of you got that. Uh, go back to the book of Acts chapter 16 for me if you would. Acts chapter number 16, you'll find where the, the church in, in Philippi really kind of got its, its beginning. Look here in verse number 6 of Acts chapter 16. Now, when they had gone through out uh, Phrygia and the region of Galatia and were forbidden of the Holy Ghost to preach the word in Asia, after they were come to Mycenae, uh, they essayed to go to Bithynia, but the Spirit suffered them not. And they, passing by Mycenae, came down to Troas, and a vision appeared to Paul in the night. There stood a man of Macedonia and prayed, saying, Come over into Macedonia and help us. And after he had seen the vision, immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, assuredly gathering that the, uh, uh, gathering that the Lord had called us for to preach the gospel unto them. Therefore, loosing from Troas, we came uh, with a straight course to Samothracia, and the next day to Neapolis, and from thence to Philippi, which is the chief city of that part of Macedonia, and a colony, and we were in this, that city abiding certain days." Now, Paul and Silas were joined by Timothy. If you were to go back into the beginning of chapter 16, you'd find where Timothy, uh, verse number 1 there, uh, a certain disciple was there named Timotheus, the son of a certain woman, was a Jewess and believed, and his father was also a Greek. And so he joins Paul and Silas and, uh, and apparently Luke. Luke also was with them because we know Luke is the one that's writing in the book of Acts. Uh, but then if you were to uh, drop down to verse number 10, it says, Immediately we endeavored to go into Macedonia, drop down again to verse 16, and it came to pass as we went to prayer. And so apparently Luke was there. He's not getting third-hand information. He is actually uh, there getting, getting it right, right as it's taking place. Uh, so after Galatia, they had attempted to head into Asia, but the Holy Spirit had other plans. And I'm so thankful that some people's plans have been changed and altered and the course was rearranged because it's other people's plans being interrupted that brought me the gospel. 
And I'm sure that the same can be said for many of you today. And aren't you thankful for the people who uh, their plans were changed and as a result of that, the gospel came to you? I can think of my uh, parents and, my, and, and their desires and their hunger to go a certain direction in life. But when God got a hold of them, it changed the course of their life forever. And because of their course change, I was able to be introduced to the person of Jesus Christ. And so I'm thankful that God does allow the courses of, of man to be altered for my sake. Now think of that in, in your own life. And how thankful we can all be that somewhere along the line, someone wanted to go one direction and God said, no, you need to go this way instead. And it led to you being introduced to Jesus Christ. I find here uh, that Paul and Silas and the the troop were getting ready to head to Asia. The Holy Spirit had different plans, so they tried to go into Bithynia. But again, the Spirit uh, had other plans. And it wouldn't allow them to do that. He says, no, I have a plan, and I'm so thankful that God's vision is so much bigger than ours because uh, many of us, would, we would fight to go the direction that we want to go and not listen to the Holy Spirit of God trying to change our course. But wait, you don't understand. <laughs> I can remember uh, as a children's pastor, and I absolutely adored doing what I was doing. I loved being able to spend time with the kids and being able to spend time uh, with my kids even. I thought, wow, I get to serve the Lord. I'm in ministry. I, I, I get many opportunities to preach, and I'm getting able to spend time with the kids at the same time. This is wonderful. And I knew what I was doing was the direction God wanted me to go. I knew it, but there was one day, one specific day, that while I was presenting to a group of children, I can remember it as if it was yesterday, and God said, you're done. And it broke me. I said, I love doing what I'm doing. He says, it's time for something different. And my life started to change. I became so... So uncomfortable with what I was doing, and, and and for the first time in my time as as a children's ministry, my first time, I, I felt unsettled. And I remember talking to my former pastor, uh, and I said, "Pastor, I, said, I just don't understand it. I, I feel like a square peg trying to get in a round hole." And he told me, he said, "Son, oftentimes the Holy Spirit has to displace you so that He can place you." If you're comfortable where you are, you're not going to be ready to be placed by the Holy Spirit of God. And so sometimes He allows displacement to take place. And so here we have the Apostle Paul and Silas and Luke and now uh, Timothy, and they're making their way through, and they, they leave for Troas, for Macedonia's chief city of Philippi, after Paul has received this Macedonian call. But if you were to continue to read, look at verse 14 with me. And a certain woman named Lydia, a seller of purple of the city of Thyatira, which worshipped God, heard us, whose heart the Lord opened, that she attended unto the things which were spoken of Paul. Notice in verse 15, something interesting takes place here. It says, And when she was baptized and her household... 
she besought us, saying, If ye have judged me to be faithful to the Lord, come into my house and abide there. And she constrained us. And it came to pass, as we went to prayer, a certain damsel, possessed of a spirit of divination, uh, met us, which brought her masters much gain by saying, Lydia here was the first convert in Philippi. But not just Lydia, it was along with her whole household. Her house was reached with the gospel of Christ because the Holy Spirit had changed the direction of Paul and Silas. Shortly after this, things appeared to go downhill. And if, if you and I were probably in this situation, we'd show up and, and okay, Lord, you led us here to Philippi and, and, and it's time for us to, uh, to start preaching and I'm expecting a revival to break out and I'm expecting great things and as soon as I get there, I meet this lady, Lydia. I am able to introduce her to the Lord and not only her, but her whole family comes to the Lord and now they're joining the church and we're starting a church. They say, stay in our house. We're starting a house church. Right there, things are going great and then it says in the very next verse and as they they went to prayer that a damsel possessed with a demon meets them. And you know the story, this little girl following them to prayer and, and, and to, oh, these are the ones that share the way of salvation. Finally, Paul, being aggravated and agitated, turns to the little girl and casts the demon out. And they end up in jail. I don't know about you, but I... <laughs> Oh, come on, Lord. We were heading to Asia. We were ready to go serve you over here. You wouldn't let us go there. We tried for Bithynia. You wouldn't let us go there. You brought us over here to throw us in jail. If you were to continue to read down a yes, God still had a plan. As they were there, they were praying. They weren't complaining. They weren't whining. They weren't crying. They weren't woe is me. Uh, instead, they just decided, you know what? We're going to praise the Lord right where we are. It's okay. God's still in control. God created all this. He's the one that knows what's going on. And so we're just going to praise the Lord anyway. So while they were singing and praising, the place was shaken and the prison was completely disrupted and everybody was freed. And the jailer got scared. You remember the story. If you've been in a Sunday school class for any amount of time, you've heard of the Philippian jailer and, and how he comes and he's getting ready to, uh, to commit suicide because he knows that if, uh, if his boss finds out that he let all these prisoners escape, it's done deal. So he's going to be executed in a worse way. It's just going to be easier for me to just fall on my sword and die right here like this. And Paul calls out, do thyself no harm, for we're all here. And the jailer comes and utters those infamous words, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? Right there in verse 30. And they said to him in verse 31, Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved and Thy house. Notice that. The Philippian jailer was led to the Lord. And you'll note the entirety of his household in there in verse 31. Verse 32, it continues, says, And they spake unto him the word of the Lord and to all that were in his house. Verse 34, And when he had brought them into his house. And so he set meat before them and rejoiced, believing in God with all his house. There's two houses. 
that have been forever changed with the gospel of Jesus Christ because of a direction change by the Holy Spirit. You see, in a sense, the church at Philippi was started because of imprisonment. Now, we find Paul again in prison writing to Philippi. And so not only did the church start because of an imprisonment, in in a sense, now he's writing to the Philippian believers to rejoice. Rejoice. Think about it for a moment. The Philippian believers knew what had taken place with the Apostle Paul. And now he's writing to them, encouraging them to rejoice. I think it would resonate knowing what had taken place when they were there. Man, these are the same guys that were beaten. Their backs were bloody and raw. They would have had the soles of their feet beaten and then placed in stocks where they could not reach. And if you've ever had sores that maybe they begin to itch, especially when they get a little bit of dirt in them, and your hands and your feet are fast in stocks, I'm sure they were miserable creatures at that time. And they rejoiced. Rejoiced. So I think Paul has more than enough credibility to write to a group of people and say, Rejoice. Rejoice. Let's take a look at the theme of this book. The theme here, there are 12 forms of the word rejoice used in this book, often earning Philippians the title, the epistle of joy. Epistle is just a fancy word for letter. There are also 12 mentions of the word mind used here, sometimes earning it the epistle of the mind. But I want to point something out as we kind of look through this and the different things that are going on. With the 12 forms of rejoice being used, and then also the 12 times that the word mind is being used, I, I still don't really like giving Philippians the, the, the title of the epistle of joy or even the epistle of the mind because both are being used. However, Jesus being the main focus of the book, is mentioned over 70 times, either directly or as a pronoun. He is mentioned 70 times in only 104 verses. That's more than every other verse. I believe the focus mainly is on the person of Jesus Christ. And I think that that should be our focus. And if, if we're not careful when we come to things such as this, when we start to look at the mind being the focus of the book, or joy being the focus of the book, then we forget often the one who we're supposed to rejoice in. And we start to focus on why am I not joyful, and I need my joy, and I need to have more joy, and I want more joy, more joy, 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 joy. Or our mind, and I'm so inundated with my mind. and every... No, no, no. The focus is on Jesus. If I have anything to find joy in, it's Jesus. That's why the Apostle Paul is able to say that I have learned in whatever state I'm in, therewith to be content. I'm okay because I have Christ. If I'm focused only on the mind, oh my, that's, we got to be very careful with that one because then we become so... Uh, G.K. Chesterton said it this way, we have educated ourselves into imbecility. There's nothing that we can't find a smarter way around. 
No. We need to be cautious. So my friends, I want to present to you the theme of Philippians this way. Practical Christian living. Practical Christian living. As I come to the main theme of this verse, or of this book, being practical Christian living, I then have the ability to look at each individual chapter and divide it somewhat. So let's look at the outline here. And I want to give this to you as best I can. This is going to be the outline that I'm going to do the best that I can to follow uh, as we go through this study. It's going to be more than just four messages. You know me. Um, But uh, this is going to be the basic outline. Chapter 1 will be the life of the believer. And you'll find verse 21 as the key verse says, For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. So we're going to look at the life of the believer in that. Chapter number 2, you'll find the key verse in verse number 5 of chapter 2, which is, Let this mind be in you, which is also in Christ Jesus. And we're going to find chapter 2 being that of the mind of the believer. The mind of the believer. Chapter number 3, your key verse will be verse number 10 of chapter number 3 which is that I may know Him and the power of His resurrection and the fellowship of His sufferings being made conformable unto His death. And we'll go at the desire of the believer in chapter number 3. Chapter number 4, verse number 13, will be the key verse for, verse number, or for chapter 4, which says, I can do all things through Christ which strengtheneth me. In chapter 4 is the reliance of the believer. The reliance of the believer. Now we want to look at these very closely and I want us to point, it, to, to, to point out to ourselves every time we come to these different passages, the focus is on Jesus Christ and therefore if I am... Christian, and if you remember the uh, uh, in the book of Acts where they were in um, uh, Antioch, where they were first called Christians, it was a slur. These are little Christs. They are Christ-like, and they so they were saying they're acting like Christ. And so, with Jesus being the focus of the book, we can see it teaching us how the life of the believer ought to be. So now let's. Take a look with this. We're going to look quickly at the salutation of the book. Chapter number 1, verses 1 and 2, our text for this morning. Let me read it again for emphasis so that we refresh our minds. Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ, to all the saints in Christ Jesus, which are at Philippi, with the bishops and deacons, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. Many times we read past an introduction. We simply read on by and we're looking at this. It's like, dear so-and-so. 
It's not a big deal. Let's just move on by it. But we've got to remember that the, uh, that the Apostle Paul said, All Scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be perfect, thoroughly furnished unto all good works. So if I believe that all Scripture is given by inspiration of God, then I also believe that the first two verses of this book are given by inspiration of God and profitable. And so we want to look at this passage here, these first two verses, and understand what profit can we gain from this? What are some application points that we can draw from this? We don't want to skip over due to any lack of interest. Well, that's just Paul introducing who he is, who he's talking to, and then saying hi. You know, that's, that's, there's a lot more to it than that. There are three things that stand out to me in this greeting, and I want to look at those closely First is Paul's identification of who he is in Christ as a servant of Jesus Christ. Second would be Paul's wish for the believers of Philippi, which is grace and peace. You find that there in verse number 2. And then Paul's recognition of who Christ is to the believer. And he says to our Lord, from our Lord Jesus Christ. The first thing I want to pull out of this is uh, what Paul has to say regarding his position. Notice what he says there in verse number 1, Paul and Timotheus, the servants of Jesus Christ. You'll notice that that word servant is a little bit different than our modern day understanding of servant. It's from the Greek word doulos, And doulos is uh, simply translated, to transliterate doulos would be a bond slave, one who is enslaved. Now, a bond slave was a little bit different than just uh, just a slave in general or a hired worker. Interesting, if you were to look at the story of uh, the prodigal son, when he says, when he finally comes to himself, he says, I'm going to go back to my father and ask him, make me one of your hired servants. Different word. His plan was to go home and say, Dad, can I have a job? This type of a servant or bond slave was when someone had, uh, uh, had borrowed money and they, had, they could not pay it off and they became a slave of someone in order to work off that debt. After a time, many of those people who were slaves to those uh, who, to whom they were indebted to They started to love the master because the master was good to them, gracious to them, kind to them. And he says, I I know I'm I'm about to finish my service to you, but I I want to put myself under you for the rest of my life. I want to be part of your family now. And the owner would take the man's ear to a doorpost and an awl, and he would drive a nail through, drive this awl through the earlobe and pierce that ear as a sign and a symbol saying, I am owned. It was a willing act, something that was not alterable. Paul does not refer to himself as someone who is employed by God. He refers to himself as someone who is owned by God. This is different. It's different. The way we look at... You know, well, yeah, I'm happy to serve the Lord. Are you happy to serve the Lord? Or are you happy to be owned by Him and have absolutely no say in the matter from now on? 
That's different, isn't it? One missionary once said that the problem with American Christians is that they are committed. They're not surrendered. You see, I can break a commitment, but when I surrender, I give up all opportunity. You see, a servant, they can show up. If the boss tells them to go do this or go do that, they can say, I don't want this job. I'm out of here. But a slave... He does what the Master says. No questions asked. Let's look at a few things about these servants because I I, I don't think that there's necessarily a wrong way of uh, uh, that they translate. I don't know that translating it servant is wrong because this type of a slave was not one who was beaten and abused and didn't want to be where he was. It was one who truly desired to be that type of a bond slave. And so they served willingly. It's different. But a servant, this type of a servant, does not tell his master what to do. Instead, he is told... How many times you, you know, people, have you ever had somebody working for you and you're like, um, yeah, I need you to go do this? And they said, no. Um, I'm sorry. Uh, no is uh, not an option. You want your job? Get out there and do it. I had a couple young men leave me high and dry one day. It was. It was a long night, and it was going to be a long morning the next day. And these two young men, they uh, decided that they wanted to go to the movies instead of stay and finish out their shift. And so I'm going all over the place trying to find them. I'm like, where, where are these boys? And then I'm, I'm going, and somebody says, oh, they went to the movies with some of the other guys. Oh, wasn't that special? Just, I wish I could just, you know, I'm done. I'm, I know we're still open and all that, but I'm just done. I'm, I'm going to head on out of here and go to a movie and... Uh, See, uh, so they came in the next morning like nothing had happened. Like, well, aren't you cute? You know that big sand pile out there by the dumpster? Yeah, I need it on the other side. And they looked at me like this. Uh, you what? Yeah, I don't like it on the right side. I want it on the left side of the dumpster. Well, how am I supposed to do that? There's a couple shovels in the back room. There's Wilbur over there. Figure it out. I'm not doing that. You want your job? <sighs> yeah. Then you're doing it. You see, when we are employed by someone, I could have easily said, go do it. They said, don't want to do it. Do you want your job? Nope, not really. I don't want this job anymore. I'm out. They have that right. But if I am owned, I don't tell him what I'm going to do, when I'm going to do it, how I'm going to do it, why I'm going to do it. I do it. Second, a servant does not decide what he will do. He doesn't tell the master what to do, and he doesn't decide what he will do. I kind of got my notes here a little bit backwards with the telling the master what to do. How many times do we go to him in prayer and we tell him what needs to be done? 
God, I need you to heal. God, I need you to do. God, I need you to take care of. God, I need you to go here. God, and then we get upset when he doesn't do it. God, come on, I've been wanting that red Ferrari for a long time. I'm praying more. I'm even reading my Bible now. Why aren't you getting me a new red Ferrari? We don't tell the master what to do. But many times we go to prayer just to tell him, Dad, I want, Dad, I need, Dad, I can I have, Dad, I... Whoa. We need to be careful with that. We need to be very cautious with that. It, you get that picture of the dad that's standing there with his wallet, and you know he's, he's, he's standing there with his wallet open, and the daughter comes by, and, and she says, Dad, can I have 20 bucks? And he says, yeah, here's 20. You can look at mine. The kids don't even bother coming to me. <laughs> like, I ain't going to him, going to Mom. <laughs> so, dad, can I have 20 bucks? Yeah, here you go. Dad, and the next one, the son comes over. Dad, can I have 20 bucks? Yeah, here you go. And, he, and then the daughter comes over. Dad, I'm going out with my friends too. Can I have 20 bucks? Yeah, here you go. And then the wife comes and takes whatever's left, you know. So. That's the way we treat God. Well, I'll go to him when I want something. I need a little bit more money, God. I'm, I'm upset, God. I, I, I want to go do something, God. I got a problem, God. We don't go to him for any other reason. Whoa. Whoa. A servant doesn't do that. Third, a servant does not withhold from his master. A servant lets his master know everything that is taking place. He talks to his master. He, he communicates. And people are like, well, why do I need to talk to God? Doesn't he know everything? Yes. But it's about communing with him. It's about agreeing with him. Well, you know... <laughs> I don't know. I don't need to meddle, I guess. I'll back off of that one. But a servant does not withhold anything from his master. You want me to give how much? Here's a nickel. No. God, you can have it all. You can have it all. A servant also views his servanthood as a privilege or even a blessing. This is why a servant serves joyfully. Not grudgingly. He doesn't get upset and, oh, God wants me to do this now. He's looking for an opportunity. What can I do for you now? What can I do next? Is there anything that I can do? Is there anything that you need? What do you want me to, where do you want me to go? That's the joyful heart of a servant. Look at the next thing with us and we'll get ready to start to find our way to the end of this. Look at Paul's blessing that he gives to the people there in verse number 2. It says, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. This word grace, it's, uh, it's the Hebrew word charis. And charis is a uh, Greek greeting. Uh, it would be like saying uh, hello in, in our day. Uh, many focus on the love of God, but I want you to understand that His love is not the saving agent, it's His grace. 
We need to understand what actually takes place when we ask Christ uh, to save us. Many, many people focus that what well, God is love. And so love is what, no, no, no. Love is what caused Him to want to. Grace is what saves. For by grace are you saved through faith. Now be careful with that because we need to remember, faith is not what saves. Grace is what saves through faith. Because God loves us, He saves those who place their faith in Him by His grace. And Paul is wishing to the Philippians, grace, may the grace of God shine upon you. The next thing he says here is peace. It's the uh, Greek word irene, which is the Greek equivalent to the Jewish greeting of shalom. Peace be unto you. You see, the world today knows how to shift our guilt, how to cover up our guilt, but it doesn't know how to deal with and how to handle its guilt doesn't know, how can I rid myself of guilt? I, I struggle with what I had in the past. I struggled with what I used to do. I struggled with where I used to go. I struggle with all these things. How do I deal with guilt? The cross of Jesus Christ. That's the only way it can be dealt with. You know what happened when Christ was on the cross? You see, we, we picture Christ being on the cross and, and that uh, uh, the one thief that said, Lord, would you remember me in paradise? And we say, oh, well, you know, at, at that time, uh, then Christ's righteousness was transferred over to the thief. And we go, wow, that's amazing. But then we forget because we stop there and we say, well, what happened to the guilt? Well, the guilt was just cast away. Wrong. The guilt then was transferred over to Christ. When he was on the cross, my guilt and shame were on him. And so when I place my trust in the shed blood of Jesus Christ and nothing else, my guilt is transferred to Him and He bears it, He covers it, and now I am clothed in His righteousness. The only way to handle guilt, the only way to deal with our guilt is the cross of Jesus Christ. That's it. I can shift it. I can blame mom, dad, Aunt Susie or whoever it was. But the only way to rid myself of it is to cast it on Him. For He cares. And He's the only one that's able to shoulder it. I can't handle your guilt. I can barely handle my own. And so I cast mine onto Him. Don't cast yours on anywhere else. Don't expect mom and dad or your husband or wife to shoulder it. No. Give it to Him. That's the only way we'll know peace. True peace. So how does this all apply to us today? Beloved, can I just say it this way? 
how could God ever love you more than He already has? You see, we seem to think that we need to do something or we, we need to act a certain way so that God will love us more. Can I, can I just let you in on something here? When a person becomes a child of God, the righteousness of Christ is passed to them. And God views them now as justified. He doesn't see Andy Lake anymore. He sees His Son. And so for me to think that I can gain a better standing by living a better life... or to, No, 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 no. Just stop for a minute. I'm going back to legalism now. I don't serve Him so that I can gain His love. I have His love. And now that's why I serve Him. When we realize the love that He has for us, when we realize the love of God, it causes in us a desire to call on Him. When we realize just how much He loves us, we want to, we want to seek Him more. We want, to, we want to understand Him. The natural man does not seek God. But when God is revealed to us, when we see Him for who He is, when we are presented with the truth of Jesus Christ, we are also presented with two options, to reject it or to chase after it and follow Him. When we realize the love that He has for us and we understand that it's no longer about me, it's not about myself, it's not about what I can do. He graciously saved me from my sin because He loves me. Because He loves me. I had someone ask me recently, how can God love me? Look at the things that I've done. Look at the places that I've been. Look at the, uh, the actions that I've... Look at the sins that I have committed. How can God love me? It's easy. It's very simple. He doesn't love you based on you. He loves you based on Him. He doesn't love you because of what you've done. Think about it. How many of your sins had you committed before Christ loved you? He loved you before the foundations of the world. All of your sins were in the future. See, His love for me is not based on me, and I'm thankful it's not. His love for me is based on His Son. The sacrifice that His Son made. The glory of Jesus Christ. God loves me because He is love. When we realize the love God has for us, it causes us to call out to Him. When we realize it's time for us to quit relying on ourselves and we rely on Him, He graciously saves us from our sin. And last, 
as I understand this, His rightful place is recognized and I see Him the way Paul and Timotheus saw Him. Look at verse 2 with me again, please. Paul says, Grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord, Kyrios, the Lord Jesus Christ. Many people today are happy to have Him save them from hell. Many people today are happy to have Jesus fix their problems. Many today are happy to have Him bless them. But few want to call Him Lord. How about us? Are you today able to call Him Lord and Savior? Has there been a time in your life where you have trusted in Him, not in your own merit, not in how good you can keep the rules, not in how good you can do this Christian thing? No, no, no. Have you trusted in Jesus Christ and Him alone? Are you still trying to find out what to do with your guilt? Are you still trying to figure all that out? Please, let us introduce you to Christ today. Please, let us introduce you to the grace of God and help you to find peace. Believer, would you count yourself as a bondservant of Jesus Christ? Taking everything and giving it over to Him? Do you claim Him as Lord? Well, I like Jesus. A lot of people say that. I, I, oh, I love God. Hmm. Jesus says this, If you love Me, keep My commandments. Is He your Lord? Or is He just the get-out-of-hell-free card? Father, we come to You. Father, with our hearts open and desirous, Lord, to find it filled. Father, knowing, Lord, that You and You alone are worthy to be called Lord. Father, so many things in our life take precedence. So many things in our life are more important. But Father, nothing has ever loved me the way You've loved me. No one has ever given as much as You have given for me. So Father, put a spotlight on that in a way that drives me to my knees. Father, that we as a church would, would come together and just pouring out our soul before the altar saying, God, we want to be Yours completely. Mark me. Change me. I want to be Yours. And we give ourselves over as slaves, joyfully, willingly serving Jesus Christ. 
We pray these things in your Son's name. Amen.